and welcome to On the Nature of Things, a history podcast about people, literature and nature, hosted by me, Chloe Fairbanks. And me, Mary Hitchman. We investigate how the people of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland understood and engaged with the natural world from 700 to 1700. We'll be travelling through a thousand years of history, so we should make a start. Today, we're talking about the cosmos, the universe, the stars, the sun and the moon, and what this meant to people. This is an extract from Book 7 of the Confessio Mantis by John Gower, written in 1390. It introduces the idea of astronomy, the study of the skies. Gower was an English poet, and if you haven't heard of him, you might recognise the name of his famous friend, Geoffrey Chaucer. Like Chaucer, Gower wrote in Middle English, an earlier version of what we speak today. Mathematic above the earth, of high science hath it the firth, which speaketh upon astronomy, and teacheth of the stars here, bagging upward fro the mona. Beneath, upon this earth here, of all things the matier, as tellin' us that been learned, of thing above it stant governed, that is to say, of the planets, the chalice both and ek the hatus, the chances of the world also, that we fortune clepen so, among the manis nation, all is through constellation, whereof that some man hath the well and some man hath diseases fella, in love all's well as other things, the start of realms and of kings, in time of peace, in time of war, it is conserved of the star. And thus saith the Naturian, which is an astronomian. In the medieval and early modern periods, the cosmos was broadly understood to be formed of nine concentric circles upon which the sun and planets orbited, with the Earth at their centre. As one would expect, this understanding of the cosmos developed and expanded throughout the period in line with scientific research. People were interested in the cosmos because they believed it had a considerable impact on their lives. They knew that the tides moved with the moon and logically concluded that the stars and planets influenced their health, temperament and fortunes. A saying I love that applies to this viewpoint is as above, so below. Basically, the microcosm of individual lives is reflected in the macrocosm of the cosmos. It's important to stress, though, that there was still a lot of debate about the extent to which the planets and stars affected people. It's a common misconception about the medieval period that everyone held the same opinions, but, just like us, they disagreed on a lot. Much beloved on this podcast is the Northumbrian monk Bede, who apparently has something to say for every occasion. Among his interests was the natural world. At the start of the 8th century, he wrote a whole book on contemporary understandings of the cosmos. Topics covered include the height of the sky and the arrangement of the planets. It's a fascinating insight into the mindset of a highly educated early medieval person. So this is a great quote from the book. They say that the fire of the sun is fed by water and that the sun is larger by far than the moon, but that the moon is greater than the earth. Interesting. 
As well as conceptual ponderings, people also liked to record their observations. I have something slightly later here from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The 774 entry states that a red cross was seen in the sky after sunset. Cooler still, through analysis of tree rings, modern scientists have observed a considerable increase in carbon-14 levels in 774. The red cross they observed may have been a supernova. The planets and stars could shape entire personalities. An old English text from around 1120 lists the different temperaments of those who are born at every cycle of the moon. For example, if the moon is five nights old, those born under it will suffer. But if the moon is 13 nights old, those born under it will be rulers of kingdoms. Wouldn't that lead to an awful lot of rulers of kingdoms? I suppose kingdom could be taken allegorically. Maybe they would have a higher standing in their profession or maybe their town. Oh, that manuscript reminds me of that rhyme. You know, Monday's child is fair of face, Tuesday's child is full of grace. It will not surprise you that I was born on a Tuesday. Um, interestingly, this text is a similar thing, although it is a bit weirder. So those born on Sunday will be handsome. I was born on a Monday. What, what is my future, please? So according to this manuscript, if you were born on a Monday, you'll be murdered. Well, shit. <laughs> so um, as a Tuesday baby, I am quote, sinful and perverse. <laughs> Wednesday is sharp and bitter. Thursday is kind and averse to women. Presumably this was just kind to men. Yeah. So Friday, you'll be hated by everyone and die young. And on Saturday, you'll be an alderman and have a long life. So I don't know how seriously people at the time took these categories, but they certainly reveal an interest in the cosmos on an everyday basis. So what about the study of the cosmos at a university level? Well, it certainly formed a core part of what was studied in the medieval university. The High Middle Ages were a period of considerable learning and scholarship, usually by monks, and astronomy and astrology came under the umbrella of the natural sciences, so many believed that through study of the natural world they could better understand the nature of God. In medieval Oxford, for example, study of the stars sometimes strayed into theology, and it blurred the boundaries of academic disciplines. We love interdisciplinarity. So you're a literary critic and I'm a medieval historian and we've taught each other a lot. Perhaps we can learn from the medieval university's approach, excluding the all-male thing, obviously. Yeah. So what was the difference between astronomy and astrology in this period? It's a big question. Basically, it was up for interpretation and debate, and the terms were often used interchangeably. A horoscope could be at once astronomical and astrological, for example. I should also say that these studies in Oxford owed a lot to work done by earlier medieval Muslim scholars, and Europe was really only just catching up on these scientific approaches by the 11th century. We wanted to know more about stars, so we got in touch with Eileen Malcolm at Penn. Eileen is a PhD student and they work on literature and life sciences in late to medieval England. Welcome Eileen, we're very excited to have you. So people may not be familiar with medieval manuscripts, so I just wanted to ask what distinguishes an astronomical manuscript from other contemporary manuscripts? Yeah, this is one of those difficult questions to disguise as an easy question, because due to the fluidity of disciplines and the fluidity of the medieval cosmos, astronomical material, as we would define it, might be woven in with other things like medical texts or information about bathing or, you know, sort of planting guides. I, I think, you know, certain books will just be astronomical material broadly considered, but it might be more appropriate to think about books that contain some material dealing with 
the heavens or sort of the, or the superlunar as well. A thing to mention is that um, the distinction is simply not as firm as we might imagine as modern readers. For instance, we have this manuscript at the University of Pennsylvania, LJS 445, which is a 15th century German book. Mostly it's handwritten copies of astronomical printed books, things like you know, it features a lot of eclipse diagrams, it features a little bit of how to use an astrolab, but then there's a short medical text toward the end, there's a list of constellations as defined by the astronomer Michael Scott, who has his own sort of unique list of constellations, and when we're talking about constellations, things get a little bit complicated because we're also talking about species. And one thing I really love about this manuscript is that the illustration that was originally included to for Canis Minor, the small dog, has been meticulously sort of cut out of the manuscript. And so I love to imagine someone cutting out this image of a dog and just kind of making a little doll out of it or somebody bringing it back into the earthly realm, you know, making it no longer a collection of stars, but a little dog that you can interact with as a dog. I love that image as well. That's that's really cute, actually. <laughs> so I love the idea of people interacting with manuscripts as well as books and as technology and as everyday objects, because, well, at least you're supposed to, but you, you need to kind of treat these objects with the kind of reverence and awe now, which doesn't always translate into how they were treated back when they were first produced and being used. But yeah, thank you for that. I wanted to ask you if you could describe process of preparing a digital edition of an astronomical manuscript? Yeah, well, so my work with digital editions actually grew out of a real sort of in the flesh exhibition for the annual meeting of the Medieval Academy of America. And because the Medieval Academy was such a large meeting, we decided that people who were walking through would not be allowed to touch the manuscripts, even if they were sort of the most accomplished manuscript scholar ever. It was just simpler to have only a few of us there turning the pages. And the issue with that is that a lot of medieval manuscripts containing astronomical information are gorgeous, very lavishly illustrated, even the manuscripts that we have in our rather more modest collection. And also, some of them are designed to be interactive, so they'll contain tabs you can pull or valves, which are rotating disks. And I was so overcome with sympathy for the people who really had to restrain themselves from reaching out and touching it. They're just amazing because astronomy, as we think about it, is such a intellectual process. You know, you can't really reach out and touch a star, but these books are so invitingly tactile. And so I started thinking about how to make these books accessible and comprehensible to people who maybe were not scholars, maybe were not going to be able to touch them or to interact with them in person. And so the first thing I did was I was working with MS Codex 1881 at the University of Pennsylvania again as part of a fellowship, which is a later medieval copy of Johannes de Sacrobosco's Despera. Among some other texts, there are some tables and things in there too. But this particular text contained a number of valves. So I, I really think that digital editions provide new possibilities for recreating these diagrams in a way that it's quite different difficult to have a Volvel in a printed book unless you make it out of cardstock or something because paper is not kind of as durable as late medieval paper was or as parchment was. And with digital diagrams, of course, you can also add annotations that translate the Latin and make it sort of more approachable. 
And I also think that, you know, these diagrams were often designed to help people sort of go from the printed text and create these dynamic mental models of the universe. Um, Mary Carruthers and others have written a lot about the ways that students were expected to be able to picture the universe and to move it around. And that's almost a lost art, you know, the, the mental imaging, because we have things like digital technology, we can kind of create computer models that are three-dimensional. And so we don't need to do that in our brains. But it does sort of raise the question of like, do computer models models actually give us a new way of understanding these diagrams that was maybe something that we didn't have <laughs> between the Middle Ages and now. So I created a series of interactive diagrams related to that manuscript. I'm currently involved with an initiative to kind of produce volvalis digitally and to make that really available to scholars. It's, it's always about creating certain features for other features. There's always an aspect of the book that's lost during the trip transition to digital, there are always things that are gained as well, such as the ability to share the manuscript on social media, the ability to annotate it, the ability to put two pages from different manuscripts side by side or for, from the same original manuscript, but perhaps they're in different libraries now. So for me, it's really about creating a new object that gets at something that the original was trying to convey, perhaps, but has a life of its own as well. Thank you. That's really interesting because you've you've oh you've picked up on so much there, which I'm yeah just obsessed with. The idea of the digital edition as a distinct object, I think, is really really important. And I think a lot of the conversation around digitization that's kind of picked up as a result of the pandemic loses that aspect that you are creating something new, and that something new can actually do something for you that maybe the original couldn't. But as you said, it's just like translation, digitization is a compromise. Some things are going to get lost as you as you gain others. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Thank you. Can I please talk about comets? No one has talked about comets yet. So I don't actually know much about comets. Um, please do. Yes. <laughs> so we know that people took note of astral phenomena and comets were thought to be signs of events to come. The Bayeux Tapestry depicts King Harold, who was killed at the Battle of Hastings, cowering in fear as Halley's Comet streaked through the sky. Comets were seen as especially bad omens for royals. So did this belief continue in the early modern period? Oh yeah. The Great Comet of 1577 was reported to have terrified Elizabeth I and her followers. And within a decade of that comet's appearance, a hundred pamphlets and treatises discussing comets were published in Europe. To make up for my lack of comet knowledge, we called up cosmos expert Dr. Todd Borlick from the University of Huddersfield, who works on early modern drama and environmentalism. It's fantastic to have you with us today, Todd. And I wanted to start off by asking, surprise, surprise, about nature and literature. And I was particularly wondering, what was the night sky to the early modern period and sort of how was that represented and what was the significance of that? Right. Thanks so much, Chloe. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. So the night sky is ubiquitous, if that's not too too cliche. I mean, it's 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 a omnipresent force in in early modern people's lives. It's much closer to their everyday experience than it is to ours in the era of electrification. As for how it's represented in the early modern period, the truth is it's rarely depicted in a kind of real sustained fashion at least visually, prior to the 17th century, because artists struggled to try to find a way to make darkness visible. It seemed like a paradox to try to represent the act of not seeing. In literature, in writing in general, the night is often represented through symbols uh, and narratives that make it more human, that try to bring it down to earth, figuratively speaking. I sometimes think of early modern 
writing about the night as a kind of precursor to space travel, a substitute for space travel. It's a way of kind of projecting ourselves out into the reaches of space and trying to make what could be very foreboding, very, very uh, hostile, to makes it more familiar and comforting. What were some of the strategies that they tried to use to sort of make it more human, more familiar? One thing that I'm thinking of that I'm sure doesn't quite so much go towards making it familiar, there's that bit in Paradise Lost where Milton's sort of like, could be aliens up there. Who knows? Kind of cool, right, guys? So I guess it's a double-pronged question of how did they make it more human and less hostile? And how did they try to understand the aspects of it, like potentially, I don't know, an alien that might seem quite hostile? Yeah, you raise a great point there, Chloe, that the night could evoke really conflicting responses in people. On the one hand, I think they tried to make it familiar by referencing these classical narratives, right? Drawing on the legacy of uh, Greco-Roman knowledge about, about space, about the stars and the planets and infusing the planets with particular human attributes like love, courage, valor, happiness, sorrow. But you also have, you know, the, the, the zodiac, which is basically a kind of celestial menagerie, which reflects the wildness of the night and, and that this otherness about the, about the night that's sort of radiating downwards to humans, you know, infusing uh, these bestial qualities into, into human bodies. So there's this real sense of kind of the porousness, the vulnerability of human bodies to darkness and to starlight, which is packed full of all of this, this energy for better or for worse. Uh, that has you know, positive and negative attributes in the early modern imagination. I'm glad you brought up that quote in Paradise Lost because, yeah, that, that Milton is a great example of the fascination with astronomy in this era. And he, uh, in his Italian travels, actually made a pilgrimage to go seek out Galileo, uh, who was under house service. The man knew everybody. We actually expanded the chronological scope of the podcast specifically to include Milton. We are Milton fangirls. It does mean that we're covering a thousand years now, but you know what? It's worth it. It's all for him. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that moment, I mean, it's, it reflects just how you know, daring a lot of these early modern intellectuals were like Milton, entertaining ideas that were kind of a, you know, anathema to traditional Christian lore about humanity's privileged niche in the cosmos. So yeah, I mean, that t ties into, you know, the, the Copernican theory of the heliocentric universe and this kind of de the decentering of man from you know the epicenter of the cosmic story and so yeah that the intellectual courage it took to ask those questions in the 17th century uh, I think is really impressive be respectful and Milton sometimes is portrayed as this really kind of dour and you know puritanical morbid personality but in fact you know, he he was really an intellectual rebel and someone who wasn't afraid to challenge a lot of the uh, platitudes a, a lot of this you know sacred doctrine of his era you mentioned the the different planets being associated with different human attributes. And it was reminding me of, I was reading a piece recently, it was Gail Kernpastor about leaky vessels and sort of women's bodies and women's bodies being watery. And it was talking about women's bodies being associated with the moon, which was a watery planet. And I was wondering if you have any other examples of specific tying in of these planetary attributes, either to particular people or particular groups of people. Oof, yeah, that's a good question. Certain that women were, were, for the reasons that you know, Pastor outlines, believed to be particularly susceptible because their bodies were thought to be more porous. And uh, my hunch is that this was sort of a, used as an excuse to keep women from going outdoors at night, uh, you know, along with the the, you know, the threat of sexual assault. So yeah, I mean, night night walking is a really big issue 
uh, in this era. It's hard to us to imagine that this is a criminal offense for, for much of pre-modern world to be caught outdoors at night without some sort of official business or you know, dire emergency. There's a great book I'd recommend by uh, Matthew Beaumont on, on the history of night walking. So any, anyone who's, who's uh, listening to this and is curious about the, the topic of pre-modern experience of the night, that's that's a great source. As for your question about you know specific people, I mean, it's everyone's really vulnerable to these astrological forces. It, all a question of timing. Early moderns were so fascinated by astrology because it provided them a way of understanding a lot of the complexity in human experience that couldn't be accounted for with you know knowledge frameworks that they had at, available to them at that time. So it's it helps to explain the, the tremendous diversity of human personality by positing this theory of astral influence. It, it's, it works across class lines and across gender lines and even across uh, racial and across racial lines as well. It's, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not something anyone can really evade or av- avoid. Which I guess ties into the it being simultaneously familiar and potentially frightening and hostile. That actually shifts quite neatly into my next question for you, which I think relates to the night walking that you've just mentioned as well. And that's how did people's perceptions of or understanding of the natural world change when we shift from daylight to nighttime? That's a great question, Chloe. Yes. So the night world was alive, right, with all of these chirps and hoots and you know these eerie, eerie sounds. So because we can't see well at night, we have you know a heightened sense of hearing. And I think people were were acutely aware of all of the wildlife uh, that moved about at night when humans were confined within doors. And it's kind of a moment where nature kind of reasserts control over the planets, uh, where humans are forced to confront their own cognitive deficiencies. So night does provoke a lot of anxieties. And there's a book by the Elizabethan satirist Thomas Nash called The Terrors of the Night, which documents in, in very colorful detail how early moderns were nyctophobic, uh, would be would be the, kind of the, uh, the, the fancy Latin phrase for that. He has these uh, phrases to describe night, like the devil's black book and uh, the daughter of hell. And he compares night to a rusty dungeon. So people were sort of imprisoned uh, when, when the sun went down within their houses. My favorite image in that book, he compares night to a raven that pecks out men's eyes. There's a sense that humans were night blind and that kind of epistemological deficiency was was really worrisome for a lot of people. So as a result, you know, night is rife with all of this animal life that underscores how you know, our control of the planet in some ways is very limited within these kind of chronological timeframes. And certain species like cats and owls that have much more acute night vision were demonized as a result that their perceptual prowess in the night was seen as sort of supernatural and they were believed to be you know, accessories to witchcraft for that reason. Out of curiosity, does that change at all? Obviously, I'm aware in saying this that probably my mental frame of reference of a city at night is going to be quite different from a city at night in, say, early modern London. But do you know, is there any sense in which the sort of hostility of nighttime and the night skies is potentially mitigated by being in a city? Or is it more similar between city and more rural areas? Yeah, prior to electrification, it seems as if visibility is still very clear in the night, well into the 19th century. Actually, there's an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson called Nature when he talks about looking up in the streets of Boston and admiring the beauty of the night sky, which, you know, you, you could not go sky gazing in Boston today. Uh, there's, a, there's another great story I love to tell my students about a blackout that took place in Los Angeles. 
1997 and the Griffiths Observatory was getting flooded with all these phone calls because people thought the night sky was on fire. There were these strange lights up in the sky. Was, they'd actually never seen a star before. That, that clearly wasn't the case in the early modern era, that people in this, you know, prior to the 17th century were, were much more acquainted with the night, uh, to use Robert Frost's phrase. They, they knew the stars, they, they could look up in the night sky on a night and they could probably guess you know, what day it was you know, with, within a week, just by seeing the position of the, of the stars. They were just so much more versed in the night sky and that was much more familiar to them. And I've done experiments with my students where I've taken them outdoors and asked them to identify stars. And the literacy of our students with nature is, is you know, really worrisome, very meager for most students. I think they can point out Orion and the Big Dipper, but beyond that. I was gonna say, I can confidently identify a dipper regularly. I couldn't tell you if it's the big one or the small one, but I could tell you it's the dipper. Well, it's just, it just shows, you know, how alienated we are from the night. Some Italian astronomers made a, a dark sky map of, a few years ago, and it pretty much shows, you know, if you look at satellite photos of the Earth at night, two-thirds of the Earth's population doesn't doesn't see a proper night sky. You know, people have, ne have never seen a really tr truly dark sky. And that's especially true in, you know, in the US and Europe. And I think there's a real loss there. I mean, obviously we've gained a great deal with you know, the leisure activities, the extension of leisure into the night and in terms of you know, public safety. Uh, but I think we, sh we shouldn't forget the, the price that we've paid for that in terms of you know, alienating ourselves from, from darkness and from these, the spectacle of the night sky. I have one more question before I hand over to Mary, who's going to ask you lots more fun things about astrology. You've touched on this a little with Arbe Milton and the Thomas Nash. How did these understandings of the natural world at night and the feelings toward and anxieties over the night sky play out, broadly speaking, but also any more specific examples you want to give in the literature of this period? Sure. So there is the expected kind of residual medieval view of the night as a source of terror. Uh, and, and uncertainty. And a lot of tragedies, if you actually chart this, you know, theater historians have gone through and made quantitative studies of the amount of night scenes in Shakespeare's plays. And 25% of the scenes in his tragedies are set at night where it's only like only 10% of his comedies take place in the night. The statistics were quite revealing and speak for themselves, don't they? So the night is associated with misfortune, with, with disaster. But what you see in the 17th century is that those attitudes start to diversify and there's more willingness to look at night as a site of spiritual reflection, of poetic inspiration, of philosophical meditation, of carnivalesque revelry, of partying, and of course of you know, sexual delight. So I think th there's a greater acceptance of night in the 17th century with a growing nocturnalization, a you know, growing human extension of leisure into the hours after sundown. So some writers who reflect this movement, uh, Chapman's Shadows of the Night, uh, which is one you know, of the sources for the, kind of the school of night theory that there were, you this kind of cabal of Elizabethan intellectuals meeting at night to, to debate heretical ideas about the universe. John Donne's Nocturne upon a St. Lucy's Day, comp composed of you know, the winter solstice. John Dolan, the, the composer, wrote a piece called Welcome Black Night which you know, sees it as a time to kind of indulge lovesickness and melancholy. And on Milton's uh, Il Pensoroso has, is, I think, indicative of that shift towards more positive appraisals of the night as a time of poetic inspiration. So attitudes are 
diversifying. And I think there's there's a bit of anxiety that's emerging out of this that splits along kind of political and religious lines. I think the more Puritan-minded in the 17th century want to see the night as a time of spiritual reflection, and the cavalier court culture is more enthusiastic about the night as a time of revelry uh, and you know and sexual license. So very contrasting attitudes play out in some of the, the writings of the time. In Shakespeare's work, you can see this in you know, Antony and Cleopatra, which represents the Stuart court culture of revelry during the night and the couple's ability to you know, stay awake after sundown to sort of tame the darkness symbolically represents the power to transcend death. This kind of greater than human charisma and a vitality that they possess is reflected in their ability to, to party at night. But for other plays like a Macbeth, staying awake after sundown is again treated with suspicion and that might reflect the, the fact Shakespeare's writing this in the aftermath of the gunpowder plot where it was clear that there were ne'er-do-wells about uh, after dark uh, plotting mischief. I don't think I'm ever going to look at Antony and Cleopatra the same way again. That hadn't even occurred to me. This has already blown my mind. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your answers to Chloe's questions. I very, very much enjoyed them. I wanted to start off with probably a deceptively simple question. Why did people in the early modern period have such an intense belief in astrology? A kind of hard-headed response, you know, from, a, from our vantage point would be that it was an attempt to account for differences in personality, say, between siblings in the absence of, of genetics. But clearly also it reflects the worldview of a society where there's much less social mobility, much less sense of self-determination. So people could find some consolation in a, in a more fatalistic worldview that reminded them that they, they weren't really masters of their destiny, that their fates were really constrained by what we would think of as socio-political forces, but for them it was you know, cosmic forces at work. And that's why I think by the 17th century, you see more Puritan-minded writers lambasting astrology and seeing judicial astrology as outdated, because at that point, there is a sense that people do have more capacity to kind of carve out a destiny for themselves. There, there is a sense that you can make these people in a certain strata of society have a bit more opportunity to advance themselves through their own ingenuity. But one reason I think it, it makes sense for people is that the movements of the stars really, for most people, they function like an enormous free calendar, right? At a time when people didn't have access to calendars so readily. People noticed that the rising of certain stars coincided with changes in the weather, that they, they were timed with seasonal changes like the start of summer or winter. So they could note that these constellations appearing had a kind of predictive utility, right? You could, you could link it with agricultural activities like planting or so or harvesting certain crops. So on a kind of day-to-day -day practical level, the stars did dictate the timing of certain economic activities for people, and it was really effective. And of course, it also made a great deal more sense in a geocentric cosmos, where the Earth is the center of the universe. What I think early moderns would have struggled to accept that this you know, celestial panorama of all of these thousands upon thousands of twinkling stars existed for, for no purpose, that, that they wanted to believe there's some kind of utility, some purposefulness that pervades the universe. So if we're at the center, it seems logical that the energy, the light that's radiating from the stars would precipitate downwards to heaven like, like celestial rain, uh, that this kind of energy radiates towards us. And after all, think about it, you can see that the moon affecting the tides. Right? For, for most people, that is proof positive that there is such a thing as astral influence. And if the moon can do that, why can't the planets? The stars and the planets were much, much closer, you know, infinitely closer to Earth for early modern people than they 
are to us. So it wasn't such of a stretch to imagine that the light that they radiated actually affected us. You know, agricultural manuals, manuals telling people to plant certain crop when certain planets are around because the extra light is actually helping them grow. So lots of reasons why this, this worldview that seems so patently absurd to us actually seemed very believable, very credible to a lot of intelligent people at this time. I love the idea that, you know, someone's like, I grew this excellent corn with the help of Venus, my friend Venus. <laughs> Yeah, and, well, that might, you might, and that might actually help your sex life, you know, if, if Venus's energy is infused into the food. Yeah. Sexy corn. Brilliant. Cornflakes. Anyway, <laughs> a real tangent here, so please forgive me. Astrology and horoscopes have become a lot more popular within recent years. So the, the rise of apps like CoStar, which deliver a really, really specific horoscope to you every day. And, you know, there's jokes about people asking, you know, what time are you born? I want to plot your birth chart. Could you see any kind of similarities between how we're using horoscopes today to how people in the early modern period were using horoscopes. Definitely, Mary. I think that the correlation is undeniable that we find the same kind of comfort in, in these horoscopes as, as early moderns did. Making huge, life-changing decisions is always nerve-wracking. And if you can find some kind of external nudge, right, to push you in a certain direction where you're already leaning, it provides a kind of solace, doesn't it? It alleviates some of our anxiety or some of our responsibility for making these really drastic decisions. And yeah, early modern people used horoscopes to determine years or months or days of the week for making life decisions, whether you know there's getting married or you know investing in a certain you know financial scheme, trying to predict what the harvest might be like that year, trying to see how many children they might have or, or when they might die. So people ask similar questions today, you know, about should I marry the person I'm dating? That really hasn't changed all that much. Humans are still prone to the same anxieties, uncertainties, and still want some kind of answers that even with all our advanced scientific knowledge we just can't crack i could be completely misremembering this but weren't star charts drawn from births of like royal children in this period yes definitely although it could be very taboo as well because those star charts might predict deaths so i think there was a famous case where it was declared illegal for anyone to cast queen elizabeth's horoscope because there was a a concern that certain political factions might use that to oust her from the throne and in install their their preferred candidate. So the nobility, the, arist the aristocracy were definitely in investing in these horoscopes, but they tried to keep them under wraps because you know, they could be used against them. There's a scene in the Duchess of Malfi where she pays to have a horoscope cast for her child, and it turns out to predict an early death. So yeah, that's it's so very ominous in that case. And Webster is one of the more Protestant-minded, I think, is looking at astrology as a sort of backwards Catholic practice in that play. Um, that's why he portrays it so negatively. But people also use them, and it was for, for medical procedures. So astrology is closely linked with medicine. Because astral forces were believed to permeate human bodies and control the humors or inner juices of, of humans, you had to synchronize medical procedures with certain astrological conjunctions. So if you were going to schedule a bloodletting, you wanted to, want to make sure that the planets are auspicious for, for that sort of surgery, because otherwise it could, it could go very badly. Leech is famously very particular about astral alignment. <laughs> Definitely like it. This is kind of going off that and entirely hypothetical. But for example, 
Say that someone desperately needed a medical procedure, like on death's door, but the planets are not in alignment. Is it more crucial to wait for planetary alignment than it is to operate in that situation? Ooh, yeah. Well, that's a tough one. Yeah, I suppose if it were really di dire, then they would they would probably ignore the cosmic recommendation. But yeah, it's it's tough to say. It depends how avidly someone believed in this. Probably by the 17th century, I think that's would be less less paramount for some more practical minded people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that you've really emphasized for us today, which is very helpful, is that there is this huge kind of spectrum of belief and you know the extent to which people subscribe to certain practices and beliefs but yeah very interesting thank you i did want to ask you about the harmony of the spheres what is the harmony of the spheres please <laughs> sure so yeah this is a the brainchild of one of the most important thinkers in antiquity, the pre-Socratic philosopher Pythagoras. He's best known for his mathematical investigations, but he was fascinated with astronomy, astrology, and numerology, and he thought that they were all they were all linked. He, he was a polymath and believed all the sciences were interrelated. Pythagoras believed from observing the movement of the heavenly bodies consistently year in year out, you would be overawed with a sense of the intricate order in the night sky and that you could kind of have an auditory hallucination of that order in the form of music. This, this idea gets picked up by a lot of later astronomers and thinkers. Many people pushed it in much more literal directions. There was, there was a belief that there were heavenly spheres, that each of the planets moved on a kind of crystalline orbit, like a crystalline string that stretched through the heavens. And as the planets moved, each of the planets corresponded to a different note of the scale. So some people interpreted the, the harmony of the spheres in a very literal fashion. So the motion that each planet made emitted a note of the scale, and you could you could hear them kind of creating a cosmic chord if you were attuned to, to these occult sciences. That's just so beautiful and also just so wonderfully literal. And I am now going to form a band called the Cosmic Chord. I just kind of wanted to know the extent to which people were kind of picking up this idea and this kind of like science, this astronomy. So were people in early modern England like reading Pythagoras, for example, or engaging in that kind of scientific exploration, as it were? I'd say they're reading a about him. Pythagoras himself abjured print. He was supposedly suspicious of writing down his knowledge because you had to be initiated into it. It was you know, an elect society of intellectuals. Oh, and he also he also told his pupils that they weren't allowed to speak for five years. You had to undergo a quinquennial silence. I mean, imagine telling that to an undergraduate student this <laughs> in the 21st century. Maybe by the time you're a postgrad, I'll let you actually express your opinion in my seminar. Don't think that would fly. But yeah, clearly his ideas are circulating. And significantly, Pythagoras is also credited as one of the first people to propose a heliocentric worldview. And, and when Copernicus's ideas are first published, he actually frames it as not this, you know, radically unprecedented idea, but actually as a return to ancient astronomical knowledge pioneered by Pythagoras. So he gets a certain cachet following the dissemination of Copernicus's ideas in England in 1576 with Diggs's famous summary of Copernican universe. 
I'm going to ask you to expand on Copernicus, if possible. The significance of that discovery for early modern views of the universe, yeah, it's world-shattering. I mean, there are very few discoveries that rival the importance of that. I mean, it should be stressed that it's not accepted overnight, as Thomas Kuhn famously established. This isn't a, a Copernican revolution. It's a gradual process in which early modern intellectuals and eventually the common people accept that the evidence of their senses are actually a fallacy, that the, the most fundamental fundamental human perception we have every day of the sun rising in the east and setting in the west is actually an illusion. Once you start doubting that, I mean, what can't you doubt, right? You, everything becomes so subject to, to skepticism. So it's it's really a massive shift in how people see their niche in the universe and how they question the evidence of the senses. As someone who studies environmental history, it's very tempting to read this as a kind of parable. A dethroning of humans from the center is as a blow to our anthropocentric vanity that, you know, we are the center of the universe. I do think there's something to that, that Copernicus makes it easier to raise questions about whether the universe is designed for us in the way that Milton is when he's asking about the existence of life on other worlds. And, and Robert Burton in his Anatomy of Melancholy is asking the same thing. How, how are all things made for man? If we're in fact just one rock spinning around a star amidst an infinite number of other stars. But I also think that something was lost in this transition, that it also is the beginning of human alienation from the stars, from, from the heavens. So I think that the darkness of the post-Copernican night could actually be in some ways more terrifying. There's a simultaneous shift away from astrology and a, and a, and a kind of decline in astro astronomical literacy. People become less attuned uh, with, with the night sky. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there was almost a feeling of betrayal, you know, if they felt that this really beautiful, intimate relationship with the stars, which, you know, when they, they have this new knowledge of science, suddenly that disappears. And that kind of feeling of alienation must have been really quite odd. Was there any sense of cultural or religious fallout almost? Were, were there any kind of repercussions from that? Oh well, yeah, definitely within the case of Galileo being the, the most famous example, but there's also Giordano Bruno, who was another Italian intellectual in the 16th century, who actually comes to England and debates with the Dons at Oxford about Copernican cosmology. He did believe in the plurality of other worlds. He's one of the first people to seriously pose the existence of aliens. And he is eventually executed, burned at the stake for heresy in Rome in 1600 as you know, one, of the, one of the martyrs to science. And I think it's a, it's a real shame that his life was cut short because he did have a much more ecological mindset, picking up on aspects of Platonic and Pythagorean thought about the universe actually being sentient and alive and, and all life forms as being interconnected. You said Bruno is one of the first to posit the potential existence of aliens. Is there any sense of, ooh, there could be life on other planets as at all a widespread belief? Or is that, uh, no, no, absolutely not. That's too terrifying. We've already been decentered. I'm just really obsessed with Milton's aliens. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it depends who you ask. Again, their reaction would differ. It is starting to circulate by the early 17th century, so after Galileo's discoveries of the Jupiter moons or satellites around Jupiter in, in the phases of Venus, he, he's pretty pretty much garnering evidence that, in fact, Sun is the center of our solar system, not the Earth. So this proposition becomes a lot more feasible. John Dunn starts to speculate about life on other planets, and oh, there's a wonderful essay by William Imsen called Dunn the Spaceman. Burton I already mentioned to someone who entertained this possibility, and Milton probably the most famous. I think there's some satires written about men in the moon by some cavalier poets. Ben Johnson writes a play poking fun at this vogue for thinking about aliens and using it as a political satire. It is becoming intellectually respectable at this time, though it was probably a bit far out there for a lot of people to, to accept, uh, because 
as you said, their, their minds were already being stretched so much by the new Copernican model. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Now we'll hear a poem by Hester Poulter, who died in 1678. Her poetry was only discovered in the 1990s, and it contains up-to-date astronomical ideas and shows a deep curiosity about the world. Victorious palm, triumphant laurel boughs, encircles round illustrious Caesar's brows, whose valour fills with wonder future story, whilst virtue crowns him with immortal glory. Let bright Minerva's olive tree still grow to shade his throne, whence truth and peace may flow. Down to our humble orbs, oh let him live, still to receive from heaven to us to give. And let his lovely, loyal, royal queen to all succeeding ages still be seen, a most unparalleled pattern of true love, begun on earth, ending in heaven above. Oh, let them in their shining spheres be fixed, and never with prodigious meteors mixed, but by the prima mobile turned round, lasting as Delia's let their race be found. And when those glittering globes are all dissolved, let them in endless glory be involved, till when let grace and blessing from above descend on them and all that do them love. Thank you for joining us today for a meteor shower of historical knowledge. Grab your broom and your cauldron because next week we'll be talking magic and how people use the natural world for spells. You can follow us on Twitter at The Nature Pod, where we post all the stuff we couldn't fit into the episode and give updates on what's to come. If you've enjoyed listening, please leave a review, tell your friends and subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. Until next time. This episode was produced by Mary Hitchman and Chloe Fairbanks. The artwork is by Chloe Fairbanks. The theme tune is by Alexander Nakarada and is licensed for use under Creative Commons. Thank you to our actors for this episode, Rebecca Williams and Elizabeth Perry, for bringing these historical texts to life. We are grateful to Torch Oxford for supporting this project. <laughs>